When life peels you back like an onion, each layer should look like Jesus. God's goal for his family, you and I, is to grow up in the image and stature of his son, Jesus. When the world looks at us, they should see Jesus. Welcome to Mana Bible Lessons. In this podcast, we take an in-depth expository look at the Bible. You're listening to the audio-only version. If you would like to see the video, visit manapodcast.com forward slash watch. And now, here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you could turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we've been in the letter of Ephesians for several weeks now. Uh, last week, we just opened the last half of the book. The first three chapters, as you recall, were, were doctrine, uh, basically the principles of how to live. The last half of the book is practices. Uh, the first three chapters describe God's work in calling out and building his body, his family, the church. All who have been saved through God's grace, through faith in Christ, have been made part of his body, his family. We're as intimately connected with Jesus Christ as your hand is with your arm. Because the church, that's us, God's family, the body is the physical representation of Jesus Christ here on earth, while he, of course, is in heaven. So beginning in chapter 4, Paul moves into the practical application. So how do we apply all those principles we learned in the first three chapters we're going to go through that in the last three chapters. Uh, those who have been saved by faith in Christ, that's you and I, need to live in a manner that is worthy of their calling and position in Christ. Last week we pointed out that really the theme for the last three chapters of Ephesians is found in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So we're really looking at the worthy walk. How do we behave in the world in a way that reflects on Jesus Christ since we represent him on planet Earth? So God's people, as we talked about the last few weeks, are called to live in loving unity with each other because that accurately reflects the character and the reality of Jesus Christ. The last couple of weeks, and now we're going to begin to transition even more this week, last week specifically, we reviewed the fact that every believer has been given at least one spiritual gift or a divine, a supernatural ability to serve God. And these spiritual abilities are given by God, the Holy Spirit, for the specific purpose of equipping each one of us to fulfill and complete the work that God has planned for us to do on earth. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to two good works which he prepared beforehand. So we have all had a job description written by God from the beginning of the, before the foundation of the world, and he has given you and I each the specific, precise giftedness in order to accomplish that goal. And today we want to look at the unity that the body experiences when each member of God's family are exercising the gift that God has entrusted them with. Now today, that church has really drifted a long ways away from that model. Over the centuries, the church has adopted a practice that is not taught in the Bible at all. We have a special class of Christian called clergy, right, professionals, paid, who are supposed to do the work of the ministry. 
and the rest of the congregation called the laity sits back and watches them do it. Now, that's not the biblical model. Pastor Steve Cole writes about an incident that illustrates this point. Years ago, Bud Wilkinson was the coach of the Oklahoma Sooners football team, and they were champions uh, over the years quite a few times. And a young reporter once asked this coach, Coach, how has the game of football contributed to the health and fitness of America? To the reporter's shock, Wilkinson responded, it has not contributed at all. What, 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 what do you mean, stammered the young reporter? Wilkinson said, I define football as 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 22,000 in the fans desperately needing exercise. <laughs> this is what too many churches look like, right? We have too few sweating and too many spectating. Should be the other way around. So God has called everyone, you and I, in his church family and given them a job description and the special abilities called spiritual gifts that enable us to fulfill those jobs. And there are really three representative lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Romans 12, verses 6 to 8, 1 Corinthians 12, much of that chapter, but really emphasizing 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10 and 28 to 30. And then Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, which is where we're going to be today. Now, if you jump back real quick to verse 7 of our chapter today, Ephesians 4, verse 7 says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each one of us received at least one spiritual gift from God at the moment of salvation. Our lesson today doesn't necessarily review each individual gift as much as it focuses on gifted people that God gave to his church to equip them. So these four offices we're going to talk about today are really leadership gifts that highlight and focus on the Word of God. And as we will see, God's Word is central and crucial to a growing and maturing church. Now in the Greek, the lesson we're going to do today, verses 11 through 16, are one sentence. This book, Ephesians, this letter, has eight different parts of it where you have multiple verses in just one long Greek sentence. I mean, it's just comma after comma after comma after comma. When Paul gets rolling, he can't put the brakes on. And as a friend of mine said, her boys tell her when she gets on a roll, Mom, land the plane, land the plane. I mean, you're circling the airport, circling the airport. So this is a long one sentence, but we're going to punctuate it today. So if you'd be so kind to go to chapter 4, verse 11, and he, God, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Here's the principle. God uses gifted people to equip his saints to serve so that his body is built up and made strong. God uses gifted people to equip his saints to serve so that his body is built up and made strong. And the first one he lists is apostles, apostolos. It literally means, it literally means a way plus to send, a way to send, which means one who is sent with a commission. Uh, you know, a servant is sent by their master on a mission uh, to complete an assigned task. And that's where we get the word missionaries. They are people on a mission. 
they have a specific calling and a job description. So in one sense, all Christians have an apostolic ministry since every one of us has been sent on a mission. What was the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Go into all the world and make disciples. And that commission is for every single one of us. So to that sense, we all have an apostolic mission. But in the New Testament, the title apostle was very specifically applied to those people who had been with Jesus, had seen him after his resurrection, and had been specifically appointed by him for that task. Jesus had many disciples. Hundreds of people followed him. A disciple just means a learner. An apostle, though, is so specifically selected and divinely appointed by God to, for that particular purpose. And God authenticated these apostles' ministry with supernatural miracles, Hebrews 2 tells us. And 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that the apostles' ministry was authenticated. In other words, demonstrated to be from God by signs and wonders and miracles, etc. As you recall, there were 12 original disciples. Judas Iscariot, uh, of course, the betrayer of Christ, uh, went out and hung himself. And in the first chapters of Acts, they, they uh, drew lots, and Matthias became the one who replaced Judas, and he was numbered as one of the 12. So he was an apostle, and so was Paul, who was called by God directly on the road to Damascus, met Jesus face to face, and was commissioned by Jesus as an apostle. Now, the apostles were involved in laying the foundation for the church, and they did that through writing much of the New Testament, if not all of it. I think the only book in the New Testament that I can recall it was not written by an apostle was Luke and Acts, because Luke was not an apostle, but the other uh, 12, John, Paul, etc., and the Gospels written by apostles. They were the church planters. They carried the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles, and the office of apostleship, uh, from a biblical standpoint, died in AD 95 when the apostle John uh, died. So that office ceased to exist because we have the word of God. We do not have any new revelation. The second office mentioned here, God gave apostles and prophets. And prophets literally means for to speak, for to speak. And it literally means foretellers, foretellers, and forthtellers. There's a difference. A person who speaks, speaks forth for God. They proclaim the word of God as revealed by the Holy Spirit. See, before the Bible was written, we didn't have the written word of God, so God spoke his word directly through human instruments. And those were called prophets. The Holy Spirit spoke through them. Now, we often think of a prophet as only one who foretells the future. In other words, they predict the future. And that is a function of a biblical prophet, but that was generally not even their major job description. The bulk of the time, a prophet spoke for God. He spoke the truth that God, the Holy Spirit, had revealed to him, and he spoke that truth to whomever God told him needed to hear it. In the Old Testament, very, very often, you will read the words, and the word of the Lord came to blank. Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, the word of the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit speaking what he wants that individual to say to the people who he wants to say it to. Isaiah generally spoke to the nation. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and said what? Jonah, pack your bags, go to Nineveh. Of course, Jonah didn't want to go. God has ways of dealing with that. You know, you can't swim that far. I'll send a whale and we'll take you there, right? Or a fish. 
So today, we generally don't have prophets. As a matter of fact, I guarantee we don't have prophets who bring us new revelation on a par with Scripture. God, the Holy Spirit, teaches us today through what? What you have in your lap, the written Word of God, the Bible. The canon of Scripture, the, 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 the objective of Scripture, the body of Scripture is closed. God is not adding any new revelation to His written Word. His written word is complete. It is finished as is. So one of the ways you want to tell a false prophet, very, very simple. Anyone who claims to have new revelation from God that's on par with Scripture is a false prophet. It's real simple. The end of Revelation says anybody who adds to this book, anybody who takes away from this book, bad things happen, significantly bad things. So God does not add new revelation to his word. He said everything he wants to say. And we simply, at this point in time, don't need new revelation. What we need to do is obey what we already know. Amen? So, that doesn't say the Holy Spirit can't speak to you today. Because the Holy Spirit does speak to you today. The Holy Spirit's already spoken to you this morning. If you were in the 8 o'clock service, He was speaking. Whether you were listening or not, I don't know. But He was speaking. Amen? I'll tell you, Roger is an instrument that the Holy Spirit speaks through. Our whole leadership team is at that point in time. So the Holy Spirit does speak to us today on a regular basis, and most of the time, he will speak through his word. One of the reasons we're big fans of scripture and knowing scripture is that is the mechanism through which God speaks oftentimes, right? He brings a word to mind. He brings a verse to mind and says, that is for you. Apply that, etc., etc. So all revelation is written from God. Anybody who says they have a word from the Lord, I'm not saying they do or don't, measure it by the word of God. Measure everything by the word of God. So the word of God becomes the lenses through which you view the world. You don't view the word of God through the lenses of the world. You evaluate the world through the lens of God's word. This should be the eyeglasses. Does that make sense? Say yes. yes. Good. Now, thirdly, evangelists. Evangelist literally means good messenger. Good messenger. It's, an evangelist is one who tells the good news. They bear good news. They proclaim good news. Uh, apostles and prophets were given God's word by direct revelation, which they wrote down under the power of God's Holy Spirit. Evangelists don't have new revelation. They proclaim existing revelation. They proclaim God's word to the world who needs the Savior. And the gospel, of course, means good news. And the good news is that God and man can have a relationship. The human race can have a relationship. Sinful humanity can have a relationship with holy God because Jesus Christ came into the world to redeem sinners. That means to buy us back. Reconcile a relationship with God by dying in our place and, and paying our sin debt. That's good news. Separated man can reconcile the relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, evangelists are midwives. Evangelists are obstetricians, right? They're involved in what? Spiritual birth. When you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, tell the good news of salvation, and someone else responds to that by faith, what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. That is spiritual birth. That is brand new birth. That's why evangelists are midwives and obstetricians. They're involved in new life. Now, they don't give new life, but they're involved in helping this person become born again. They have new life in Christ. 
And when you came to Christ, your sins were not just forgiven. You received the life of Christ in you because the Holy Spirit came to live in you. So you have not only eternal life in heaven, you have God's life in you right now because God himself came to take up residence in us at the moment of salvation. The Bible calls Philip an evangelist, Acts 21. Now, remember, Philip is one of the deacons. Philip is one of the ones who'd been waiting tables uh, because the apostles were so busy preaching and teaching and prayer that uh, the, the, the Jewish widows and the Greek widows were being neglected. They were serving problems. And so they appointed him as a deacon, one who served food. And when persecution came to Jerusalem, Philip traveled north to Samaria and began to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And Acts 8 tells us that God authenticated that ministry through many, many miracles. And so many, many people came to Christ through Philip the Evangelist. This was the same Philip that the Holy Spirit says, I want you to go to the Gaza Road in the desert. I've got a divine appointment with you from, with uh, the, the eunuch, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, who was the treasurer for Queen Candace of Ethiopia. She wa he was a massively important person. He was kind of the C, uh, CFO, chief financial officer for that entire nation, and he was on the Gaza Road, and God told Philip, I want you to go and bring the gospel to this person, and of course he did, and so the gospel came to Africa through this particular person. So some of us in this room have the spiritual gift of evangelism. You have been blessed by God to win people to Jesus on a regular basis. And I know people in this church that have the gift of evangelism and they lead people to Christ every week, every week, every week. It's remarkable. However, not all of us have that gift, but every one of us are called to be witnesses. Every one of us are called to be witnesses. Matthew 28, go be a witness. A witness tells what you know. Have you ever been called into court as a witness? You're just called to tell what you know. Well, you can tell people what you know. What do you know? You can tell people what Jesus has done in your life. That's a witness, right? We're all called to tell people what Jesus has done in our life and who he is. So we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, and now we have pastor, teacher. Now, some see this description as referring to two different people, a pastor and a teacher separately. And of course, in this view, all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. Other commentators view this gift as one set. Pastor teacher is one office, and you have two separate ministries. A, a pastor teacher is someone who leads a flock, a body of Christ, a local church, and they both pastor that church and they teach in that church. So the word pastor literally means a herdsman, a shepherd. A pastor is a shepherd. This means that the local church, of course, is a flock of sheep who need shepherding. Um, and Pastor Roger has said over and over, every pastor needs a pastor. So none of us can say, I don't need shepherding. The shepherds need shepherding. All of us need shepherding. And of course, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, the perfect shepherd. And he said that people are like sheep who need a shepherd. Our very own Doug and Holly Colhane uh, have a shepherding ministry around the world. And they teach us that shepherds do at least three things. There's threefold job description. Number one, shepherds provide for the needs of their sheep. They provide. That's the ministry of provision. In John 10, 19, Jesus said, John 10, 9, 
I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and what? Find pasture. That's nutrition. That's food. That's provision for the sheep. Second thing, shepherds protect. Shepherds protect their sheep from harm. You should be looking at this saying, oh, pastors provide, pastors protect. That's exactly right. That's where we're going. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now today, most of us are not going to be expected to physically lay down our life in one incident of, of martyrdom for someone else. But I will tell you how you know someone loves you when they lay down their time for you. That's laying down your life because life is time. You know someone loves you when they lay down their time for you. They sacrifice their schedule. They prioritize you on their calendar. They give up stuff that's important to them to be available to serve and meet your needs. That's laying down your life. And quite frankly, that's much harder than just dying. You die once, then you're in heaven, it's over with. Laying down your life one day at a time for the people who you are responsible for, that's daily sacrifice your life. And that's what shepherds do. Number three, shepherds are always present with their sheep. So shepherds provide, protect, and shepherds are always present with their sheep. John 10, 3. Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. The number one arena that most of us in this room are shepherds is with your children and grandchildren. And you can delegate a lot of things, but you can't delegate that. And if you don't know your grandchildren by name, you need to know their middle names, you need to know their birth dates. You need to spend T-I-M-E with them insofar as you can. I know sometimes mom and dad get in the way of that. You gotta say, mom and dad, just give me time with the grandkids. Children are an altered state of consciousness. You ever held a grandchild? Are they an altered state of consciousness? Don't they put you in another space? That's exactly right. You are their shepherd, among other things. You're not their only shepherd. Mom and dad are their shepherds. I get that. But you shepherd your children and your grandchildren and whoever the Lord brings into your case, into your life. So Paul says, pastors, teachers, you feed people God's all-sufficient word. And one of the reasons that Marilyn and I came to this church 15 years ago is the word of God was taught straight up. Thus says the Lord, and we heard the truth, and we heard the love of Jesus Christ, and that's one of the reasons we came here 15, 16 years ago. Number two, shepherds protect the flock from false teaching. And one of the ways you do that is by exposure to truth, and of course serve them through encouragement and exhortation, and shepherds know their sheep by name because they spend time with them. They're available, okay? All right, let's talk about teachers a little bit. A teacher is one who explains the things of God to others. So when we talk about we exposit the word of God, that just means you explain the word of God. Exposit just means explain. So a teacher of God's word must first be a student of God's word. You don't hear Roger, Phil, Andrew, Brian stand up and teach on Sunday morning without being prepared. They are prepared. They have done the homework. You know they've been in the word that week. Folks, there is no substitute for the hours. You just will pay the time in hours or it won't be there. You don't need to be brilliant to be a teacher, but you do need to be diligent. 
Read the text, explain the text, apply the text. That's real simple. What does God say? What does he mean? How do I obey it? This is not tough to understand. So if evangelists are obstetricians, then pastors, teachers are pediatricians. They're involved in the growth, in the maturity, as baby Christians grow up into maturity. Pastors lead, feed, guard, and guide God's lambs as they grow up into full-grown, mature Christians. And that's the next phrase. They do all this for the equipping of the saints so that you and I, the saints, would be equipped. And equipped in the Greek literally means mending nets or it's a healing ministry, making well. It literally refers to restoring a dislocated limb or setting a broken bone, right? So when the body of Christ is fragmented and disunited and divided, it's like having a body with dislocated limbs or broken bones that needs setting, it needs restoration, it needs healing, it needs mending. Equipping also could mean furnishing a room uh, to make it ready for a guest. Um, you know, when you, when you remodel a house, you bring the walls, uh, the room down to the walls, and you have this open room, or when you buy a new house and you walk into a room and it's all vacant, right? An empty house when you're going to buy it and you see all these rooms. And some people have the gift of being able to imagine what that room would look like with all the furniture and stuff. Some people like me do not have that gift. So somebody's got a computer that can kind of plug in what it looks like if you move this from here to here. That's really useful so I can see what it's going to look like. Well, equipping literally can mean furnishing a room. So when we say that pastors, teachers equip us for the work of ministry, it could mean to prepare, to furnish, to restore, to mend. Um, for example, if you're a soldier and you're on a mission, your equipment has to be prepared. It has to be ready. Uh, when you're equipped, you're fit for carrying out important responsibilities. So the primary tool a pastor teacher uses to equip us is God's Word. God's Word is the primary tool for equipment. 2 Timothy 3.16, pastor spent the entire sermon on this last week. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly prepared, thoroughly made ready for every good work. Warren Wiersbe says, God's word teaches what is right, shows us what is not right, tells us how to get right and how to stay right. Now, teaching is what's right, Reproof is what's not right. Correction is how to get right. And training is how to stay right. The Word of God does it all. That's why regular daily exposure to God's Word is essential. If you ate God's Word with the same regularity you ate food, the results would be amazing. I was going to say something else, but I'm glad I didn't say it. Okay, how would we like to be spiritually obese, right? I mean, come on. So, God gifts leaders as evangelists and pastors, teachers, and then gives those gifted individuals to his church family. And they equip the saints so that everyone in God's family is outfitted and prepared 
to live out the reality of Jesus in the world. And of course, Paul says, equip the saints. Now, saint is a holy thing, a thing most holy. To be holy means to be dedicated to something. It means to be set apart for God's exclusive use. So you and I are saints. We're set apart for God's exclusive use. We're separated from sin and separated to God. And the Bible calls all believers saints because every Christian is set apart for God's use. Jesus bought us back from the slave market of sin. Scripture says we now belong to him, right? Because he paid the price tag for our freedom and he set us free so we could experience a love relationship with him and serve him. And God the Holy Spirit actually came to live inside us. You can't get any more intimate than that. And we saints are equipped for the work of service. Now, service is not about self. Service is about others, right? Service is always performing work for the benefit of others. And it's really helping others come to know Jesus and grow in Jesus. Every single one of us is called to serve. Every single one of us is called to serve, not to sit. The goal in life is not to become a saint. You can't become a saint. You already are one. You became a saint when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin and gave us his righteousness. He made us holy. So when God the Father looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son. Our goal is not to become a saint. Our goal is to become a servant, just like Jesus. And the whole point of serving is to build up the body of Christ. So equipping the saints for their work of service to build up the body of Christ. And that's an architectural term, build, right? Those of you who are involved in a building trade, you know that when you construct a building, it's a process. You start with the foundation, then you build a framework, et cetera, et cetera. Now, back in the day, they didn't use wood a lot in, in Palestine. There's not a lot of wood, but there are a lot of rocks. Israel is really a kind of a gravel pile. And so they built stuff stone by stone by stone by stone according to a blueprint and a design. If you've ever seen a Mr. Olympia bodybuilding competition, I know most of you really are into that, uh, you know that these ridiculously developed muscles, uh, anybody in that competition has a very specific plan for every muscle group in the body. I mean, even the Achilles. They've got an exercise program for the Achilles. So there's not a muscle group in the body that a bodybuilder doesn't work on specifically to accomplish a specific goal. Now we are the body of Christ and Jesus has a detailed plan for the building up and the making strong of every muscle in his body, every organ, every member of his body. And a healthy church, like a healthy body, has certain characteristics. Go to verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Here's the principle. A healthy church is united around the truth of God's word, is growing in their relationship with Jesus, and is making measurable progress towards spiritual maturity. A healthy church is united around the truth of God's word, is growing in their relationship with Jesus, and is making measurable progress towards spiritual maturity. Now, there are three goals he obviously lists here. When all believers are equipped and exercising their abilities, the church is united, the church is growing in their love relationship with Jesus, 
and the church is maturing and becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, the church in Paul's day in Ephesus was not united. I mean, it was separated. They had Jewish and Gentile differences, rich and poor differences, slave and free differences. There was a lot of division and separation. And of course, one of Satan's tactics is to divide, right? United we stand, divided we fall. So Paul talks about the unity of faith. What he's talking about is a healthy church agrees upon the centrality of the word of God. A healthy church agrees upon the essential nature, the absolute truth of the word of God. The more we know Jesus personally, the more we study his word, the more we will experience unity because we're united around truth, which is what we talked about last week. All unity has to be built on truth. Secondly, the church grows in their love for Jesus. As you, and then when, when they talk about the knowledge of the Son of God, we're not talking about just Bible knowledge. We're talking about relational knowledge. You can know a lot about somebody, but until you actually meet them and interact with them, this is one of the reasons, okay, I'm really going to go off script here. <laughs> Online stuff is not the same as face-to-face -face stuff. Right? I'm not saying online is not a useful tool. It's extremely useful. It's very, very useful. Use it. But at the end of the day, you don't marry somebody probably, hopefully, until you've had some face time. Just saying. Right? There's a difference between knowing about somebody and actually experiencing them. So when Paul talks about growing in the knowledge of the Son of God, he's not talking about, I've got 3,000 verses or 500 verses memorized. He said, do you have an experience with Jesus that is deepening, that is getting more intimate and richer? That knowledge is yadha. It's, it's, it's an intimate knowledge, experiential knowledge. And he says that needs to happen in a healthy church. And of course, lastly, the church is growing into maturity. Here's the key to maturity. It's not knowledge. The key to maturity is habitual obedience. You want to become a mature Christian? It's real simple. Start obeying what you know. The more habitually you obey, the more you will grow. You cannot obey what you do not know, so we read and study the Word of God so we know. And the standard of our maturity is Jesus Christ. His character and conduct is the standard by which we measure our growth. I said measurable progress. You know, when I was a kid... I used to stand next to my dad sometimes and see how tall I was compared with him. You know, when you're first grade, you know, on tippy toes, right? And as I grew up and matured, I became closer and closer and closer to my dad's stature. They fed me so well, I grew six inches taller than him, right? And God's goal for his family, you and I, is to grow up in the image and stature of his son, Jesus. When the world looks at us, they should see Jesus, we should be a chip off the old block. When life peels you back like an onion, each layer should look like Jesus. Unfortunately, when life peels us back, that's usually a painful process. And we stink like an onion. We don't always necessarily look like Jesus. You know, it's not like the pineapple. You know one of the things about a pineapple? The outside doesn't look at all like the inside. You ever thought about that? Many Christians are experts at spiritual makeup. 
paint up the outside to look as attractive as possible, but once you get on the inside, you find out that the beauty was only skin deep. That's not what he's talking about here. He said, I want you to measure up to the stature of Jesus Christ through and through from the inside out. Now, God has various means to help us grow more like Christ. First of all, he gives us the Holy Spirit who perfects us and matures us. Galatians 3, 2 says, the Galatians have come to faith in Christ and now they're trying to grow in their faith by legalism. They've abandoned grace, they're close to it, and they say, well, if I work real hard, I can become more like Jesus, I can grow as a result of my own work. Paul says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says, look, your spiritual maturity is dependent on walking by faith and obedience to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, of course, guides us and corrects us. Some of you, some of us, all of us have probably had the Holy Spirit nudge us this last week and say, you're, you're, you're wandering away, you're falling off course, right? That's the Holy Spirit leading us to maturity. The second way God grows us up after the Holy Spirit is he gives us trials and troubles to help us grow and mature spiritually. James 1. Now this is a statement of faith. This is a statement of willful decision. Consider it all joy. And you say, well, consider what all joy? When you encounter various trials. He doesn't say if you encounter various trials. He says when you encounter. And you won't encounter one. You will encounter various plural trials and troubles. Is that not true? Do we not in the course of a week encounter various trials and troubles knowing, so why should we be joyful? Because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect, which means mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So trials are resistance training. Trials are spiritual weight training. Trials make you sweat and they exercise your faith muscle only when they're exercised by troubles. God knows exactly which spiritual muscles in your body needs exercising, doesn't he? Which means this week he has a specific custom-designed set of troubles and trials for you this week that are your spiritual weight training. And I'm preaching to me too because I know he's got them for me. He has a specific spiritual exercise program already custom designed from here for the rest of our life to grow us like Jesus. And your weight training program for spiritual development is different than mine in some cases. But the end result is the same. What? I want you to look like my son. I want you to measure up to the stature of Jesus Christ. And here's the area your muscles need development. And here's the area your muscles need development. So we look at the trials we go through and we go, man, I'm glad I don't have their trials. Of course, they're looking and going, man, I don't have, glad I don't have their trials. God knows specifically what kind of spiritual weight training we need. And so when he gives it to us, he does because he wants to grow us up and mature us and make us strong in Christ. And the last thing he does, so with the Holy Spirit, troubles and trials, and then his word. He gives us his word as a means to maturity. 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the world so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Okay, verse 14. As a result of that, 
We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, in contrast, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Here's the principle. A healthy church has spiritual discernment and stability and is motivated by love to speak the truth. Underline that last phrase. I reworded that three or four times. I was really struggling. I think that's from the Holy Spirit. A healthy church has spiritual discernment and stability and is motivated by love to speak the truth. Now, he's talking about young children. He talks about in the previous verses, mature, growing up, adulthood. And then he says, in contrast to that, young children are naive. Young children are easily deceived. Young children are confused. They don't have a great deal of discernment or self-discipline yet. Children tend to act on impulse, what feels good. They don't tend to think through the consequences of stuff. So we, we spend time with our young children. We teach them about stranger danger. We teach them... But when you come to a street, you do what? Look both ways. I mean, we're teaching them how to be aware of their world and practice discernment before they make decisions. He's contrasting spiritual immaturity and spiritual maturity. And immaturity, he says, is carried away by every wind of doctrine. It's like a sailboat without a rudder. Wherever the wind goes, that's where the boat goes. It has no independent stability. You know, Paul knew what he was talking about because Acts 27 he records how he survived a 14-day hurricane in the Mediterranean, and the winds were so strong they tore off the sails of the boat he was on and the rudder of the boat he was on. So the storm drove the ship wherever it wanted to go, and the sailors couldn't do anything but hang on. And he says, that's a picture of immature Christians. They're tossed and shaken and driven about wherever the wind of the culture takes them, right? They don't have internal stability. They don't have an internal rudder. They're easily deceived. And of course, in our world today, there is no end of religious quackery, right? You don't have to go very far before you'll see something that'll attract the naive. Years ago, it was being slain in the spirit. And then there was holy laughter and we had people barking like dogs. Someone says, well, I found the, the gospel of Judas or the gospel of Thomas or the Da Vinci Codes. There's always some new novel deception that Satan trots out to basically seduce the naive. And of course, cults specialize in enticing the immature who don't have a knowledge of the word of God. And many false teachers, quite frankly, are very entertaining. They're very entertaining. They're very persuasive. They're great showmen. And they will seduce and entice the naive. Paul says, don't be naive. Don't be immature. I want you to grow up in the measure of Jesus Christ. And the best way to deal with counterfeits is to know the genuine. The best day to deal with false doctrine is to know what the Bible says. We are commanded to know the truth, live the truth, and speak the truth in love, literally truthing it in love. And our words that we speak are heard most effectively when our lifestyle demonstrates the truth we proclaim. Paul says the only adequate motive for our words and our deeds is love. And a healthy church balances and blends truth and love. Truth without love is brutality. And I just laid them out, cut them off at the ankles. Well, you didn't have a loving attitude. You used truth as a weapon. And that happens a lot. Of course, love without truth is simply hypocrisy and sentimentality. It's just mush. 
we all are one in the bond of love and, and you worship demons and I worship Jesus, but we can get along. No, truth that's not, unity that's not based on truth is not unity. So the Greek word for truth means not hidden. It literally means transparent. Truth is transparent. Truth tells it like it is, not what I want it to be. And the standard of truth is real simple. The character of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the word of God in John 17, Jesus prayed to his father and he said, sanctify my disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We have truth. It's a great comfort. You know, one of the greatest things about knowing the Bible and knowing Jesus Christ, they never change. You can study the word of God 10 years from now. It'll say the same thing. It's wonderful. The world changes. The world deteriorates. The word of God stands forever. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. This is a foundation that will never change. So we are called to speak truth, to speak God's eternal word to lost people so they can experience the love of Jesus. And in order to do that effectively, we have to love them like Jesus loves them. And we have to speak the truth to them like Jesus speaks the truth to them. If you really love someone, you will tell them the truth about their sin. You will tell them how the love of Jesus can save them from hell and how they can go to heaven and spend eternity with Jesus if you love them. Now, if you love the saved, brothers and sisters, and they're wandering away from Jesus, you'll speak the truth to them too. And you'll say, you're wandering from the path. But the only adequate motivation for speaking truth is love. My motive must be love. Because that was the only motive for Jesus. For God so loved the world that he came and sent his son, the way, the truth, and the life. One commentator gave us a metaphor. It's kind of interesting. He says, truth is like the medicine that you need to get well, while love is the sugar that makes it palatable. Remember Mary Poppins? Just, uh, yes. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. If I know you love me, I will listen to very difficult truth that corrects me. But if I believe you despise me, I probably will not listen to the truth I need to hear to correct me. People can smell if you love them. They know. And if they feel your love, you speak truth and you have a much higher opportunity for that to be heard. So the net of that is we are all to grow up in all us aspects unto him. We're to grow into Christ-likeness. This is balanced maturity where every area of life comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm not a bodybuilder. You can obviously tell that. I'm just skin and bones. But when you're bodybuilding, you exercise every muscle of the body, not just the ones you like. You know what happens if all areas of your life are not subject to Jesus Christ, but a few of them are? you wind up looking like Mr. Incredible. His upper body was magnificent, but the guy had skinny legs. I mean, really skinny legs. He should have worn looser pants. You know, just saying. I know he's a good guy, but 
Jesus Christ wants all aspects of our life to come under the authority of Jesus Christ. So we are developed like Jesus Christ in all areas of our life. And of course, the way that happens is we surrender every area of our life to him every day. And that way we grow more and more like him. Verse 16 gives us the final outcome. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of every individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Here's the principle. A healthy church involves every member in ministry in the same way that a healthy body is the result of every member's proper function. A healthy church involves every member in ministry in the same way that a healthy body is the result of every member's proper function. Marty, are you doing prayer requests? We might want to get rolling. So let's talk about this. The whole body grows as each member carries out their proper function. The only way the whole body grows is if each member carries out their proper function. There are no insignificant body parts. Did you know that a few decades ago, actually more than that, but even last century, the evolutionary model and the brilliant, I'm saying that with great irony, people that followed it looked at the human body and says, you know, there's a bunch of organs in this body that are just surplus. We don't need them anymore. They're not needed. We don't need the appendix. Take it out. Evolution doesn't call for it anymore. Matter of fact, we don't need tonsils. Just take them out. There's all sorts of parts of the body that we thought were not necessary. Of course, that was our ignorance that did that. Now we wind up looking at the appendix and we go, whoa, the appendix is really good for gut bacteria. We really need that function. There are no spare body parts in your body. Every single one God designed for a purpose. The same thing is true of the church body. There are no spare body parts. God needs you to be doing what he called you to do or his body is less healthy than it should be. And when every member's involved in the ministry God called you to do, and by the way, it's not what anybody else calls you to do, it's what God calls you to do, whatever that is, then his body becomes the healthiest it can be. You know, when even a small part of our body is malfunctioning, do you notice? Earlier this year, I had a bloody nose teaching this class, and I never thought that would happen. I thought, there's no pain, but it's really inconvenient, you know? You ever stubbed your toe? What are you thinking about? You're thinking about the toe. It dominates your attention, right? I fell off a planter box 14 months ago and injured this right wrist. And... Um, it's healing slowly. And the doctor says, well, Mr. Hannig, at your age, which I didn't want to hear, right? So I've been shifting more of the burden unconscious to the left hand. So now the left hand's getting overworked. The left shoulder's sore because the right hand's sore. So I'm compensating. Well, you know something? When each of us are not doing what God calls us to do, the body has to compensate. And it is less healthy than it should be if everyone was doing their part. Many hands make light work. So when members of Christ's body not, don't do what God equipped them to do, there's impairment. 
And God's intention is every single member of his church family would be involved in serving by using the spiritual gift God entrusted them to. So you have a spiritual gift. You have a supernatural divine equipping and God expects you to exercise that. And that's gonna require some sweat, right? I don't know what that is, but the Holy Spirit does. And if you ask the Holy Spirit this week to show you, Lord, how, where do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to make a difference? How do you want me to build up your body? It could be the simplest of things. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be a position. It could be making a phone call to somebody the Holy Spirit prompts you. Carolyn Stout sends cards every week, every week. That's her ministry. That's her gift. I'm not calling her out, but all of you have a gift. Some of you sing. Some of you spend time with your grandchild. Floyd's got 12, Floyd Dana, 12 grandchildren. He's a stay-at-home grandpa. That's a ministry that's going to make a difference for 50, 60 years. You have grandchildren. Maybe your ministry is to pray for the grandkids. You think? Amen. This is not hard, but it's laying down your life and serving so the body of Christ is built up. And you know something? I know I talked about this last week. I need to say it again. Most of you in this class, you're serving. I know you are. And so I, I want to give you kudos. I want to say thank you. I want to encourage you. When I'm passionate about this, it doesn't mean you're not doing it. I know many of you are sacrificially serving, and I praise God for you. But I just want to encourage us, continue, continue, continue. And when you serve Jesus the way he intended, you know what you get? Joy. You get phenomenal joy. And you will be surprised at what the Lord has for him. I'm looking at Cynthia, and I'm kind of smiling because Cynthia's got a ministry with children that I think surprised her. And, you know, when, when you do and you say yes to the Lord and you go, Lord, I don't know if I should go through door number three, maybe door number two. When you say yes and you get behind that door and he opens it up, you experience joy beyond your comprehension. Okay, let's summarize and Marty will come up and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, God uses gifted people to equip his saints to serve so that his body is built up and made strong. Number two, a healthy church is united around the truth of God's word, is growing in their relationship with Jesus, and is making measurable progress towards spiritual maturity. Three, a healthy church has spiritual discernment and stability and is motivated by love to speak the truth. And lastly, a healthy church involves every member in ministry in the same way that a healthy body is the result of every member's proper function. Okay, thank you for being diligent. Read ahead. Lord willing, we'll be in Ephesians 4 next week. I love you all. Now that you know, do Marty Buck. You've been listening to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Mana Bible Lessons on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. For more information about the podcast and class, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for joining us, and now that you know, do.